Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Vonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. I just want to pick up on one point you mentioned uh, quite late in the presentation, is that you know when times are good, it's easy to get carried away. And when the forecast also looks good, that's also a good sign. But in my mind, I'm thinking when things look great, it's probably not the best time to, to go crazy and, and to invest a lot. How do you how do you break that down since you work so closely with the industry and and have seen those I mean up and down cycles? No, it's uh, correct. It's uh, usually not the smartest thing to invest on the peak cycle. But uh, you know, last time we saw rates at these levels, um, you know, was um, November twenty eighteen. Uh, we actually raised uh, October, November 2018. We raised uh, 300 million dollars of equity at that, that time. Uh, stock went all the way around 160 kroners at that time, and uh, and uh, now we have a similar freight level. Actually, we have this freight level not only now but also into next year. Um, and the stock is I don't know 75 kroners, so almost half the price. And, and during that period of time, some other things have also changed. It's, you know, October 2018, we had six ships on the water. Um, we had financing in place for those six ships. Since then, of course, we have added, um, actually, we had six ships on the water and two on the construction. Now we have um, 10 ships on the water and three ships, which will be coming very soon. Uh, uh, and, and that means that you know when you have ships on the water, they are making money. You know when you have ships on the yard for delivery two years in the future, you will not see any return on your capital for those two years. Now you will get immediate um, return. So we have a bigger fleet. We have more ships on the water. We have financing in place for all the ships. So at that time we didn't have financing in place for more than just the six ships on the water. Now we have completed it. So we have raised $1.7 billion of debt, put them on the ships, attractive long-term debt, and, and we have a nice cash balance. So I think we have de-risked the company. We have also, since then, also built a full in-house ship management system, so which enable us to, to, to compete better for longer-term contracts, which can also de-risk the business. So, so I think in general, I would agree, you know, maybe not that good to invest on the top of the cycle in shipping. Some cycles are longer though. You know, if you were in Bulkers in, in 2014 and you thought, yeah, it went very well, you know, I have to get out now. Then you were missing out on some fantastic years. So, so um, I, that's what I like about LNG. It's, it's a long-term cycle. You know, a lot of shipping segments are mature. So it means that uh, you, when you have a good market, it will be good for a certain period of time. People will be ordering ships and you will have a boom-bust cycle. Uh, that will happen in LNG as well and it happens on a regular basis. But when you have the market growing, 
the boom bust cycle will be less because you will come back to our equilibrium quicker. And then on top of that, we have a fleet structure where 40% of the ships on the water are more or less obsolete. So you have a pent up uh, uh, scrapping demand as well. So there are just some structural, uh, you know, niceties about LNG, which you don't really have in other, any other shipping segments. And, 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 and despite all this, uh, the stock hasn't really uh, responded very much to a much better outlook. I think, you know, rates are good now, but what I really like is we are getting demand from Asia. And we're getting European inventories down. That's that's what I really like. And and um, and uh, you know, let's say the stock is you know gone from forty kroners at the bottom to seventy five. But keep in mind, we invested two and a half billion dollars in ship. We have one point seven billion of debt, and then the market's cap. You know, end of twenty eighteen, our market cap was one billion dollar. No, it's four hundred and fifty million dollars. So. So if you kind of take that debt and you know if 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 the stock goes ten percent, the the value of our company is only increasing by like two percent. So have the outlook, uh, you know, changed for the better by more than two percent. You know, you have to look at that that way. And I think so. You know, we we like our stock, and you know, and and, and I think we are well positioned. I mean, it's not the perfect example, but it, maybe people can relate. I remember uh, giving advice on, on Amazon and Netflix in 2015, and I felt like looking at the growth, it looked a bit scary to think it can grow as much. But as you say, if like if the market is huge and growing, of course, Netflix and Amazon can just grow if they keep their operation and, and the growth uh, momentum. So I think it's also maybe maybe a bit too easy to to say don't buy on the top in an industry because you can find companies that are resilient and will grow with the market. But if we can just look at, at 2020, since we are doing this in, late in December, can you just take it like a general view on 2020 and try to decouple Corona? Did anything surprise you? I mean, it's hard to decouple Corona completely, but there are other things happening in the world that is not directly Corona related as well. Yeah, I, I, I just want to add one more thing then since, uh, you know, it's uh, of course investing on the top, you know. So the the market is probably on the top now, uh, both in product and freight. You know, we're at least close to the top for this cyclical upturn. Uh, but of course, our stock is, as I mentioned, market cap gone from a billion dollars to four hundred and fifty million dollars. So you're certainly not on the top when you're talking about the stock. And of course, there's a couple of other drivers in, you know. And some of these uh, tank stocks because they have these networks effects and such. Uh, that's not really those kind of natural monopolies in in shipping. It's fierce competition. So, uh, but you know, that said, you know, we have a a market that will grow, and you, we have a lot of old ships that will retire, which will make it uh, you know nice to have the the new ships for the longer run. Um, when it comes to 2020 what surprised us i think you know um i think what's most surprising is the fact that it, it's a surprise everybody says it's a surprise and it's a black swan but it's really not a black swan you know we had had two coronavirus outbreak already uh, this um you know since uh, 2000 with the first sars uh, this is sars covid one call it that <laughs> SARS. 
And then, so this is just another uh, different type. So SARS-CoV-2, uh, uh, so, so it's a similar, it uh, has some differences. It's, it's not uh, as lethal, uh, which sounds nice, but actually people are incubating longer and it's, it's more contagious in, in that sense. So, and then of course we also had MERS, this uh, other coronavirus outbreak, which was dealt with. Uh, and we have had, uh, on top of that, we had the swine flu, you know, 10 years ago or so. Uh, and, and we have had Ebola. So, you know, some people on the internet thinks uh, Bill Gates is behind the coronavirus since he warned about it. Uh, and the former prime minister, Gualen Brundtland, also warned about it. Everybody, all the specialists were warning about this. So I think the most surprising thing is that it's a surprise. Um, and... Um, I'm sometimes an insomniac, so I just uh, finished a book this week. It's a very slim book, so I recommend it. It's uh, called um, The Wake Up Call, which is probably not the right book to read at five o'clock in the morning. But still, uh, it's uh, written by two great authors, uh, John Minkelfeit, which is actually the editor of Bloomberg News, and he used to be the editor of Economist, and he's written this together with Adrian Wooldridge, which is also the economics editor in Economist. And they've written a lot of good books. You should read them all, but you could start with this one wake-up call, which is not very long. But it really describes this something similar, you know, that this has been won, and maybe the biggest surprise is to see how poorly Western society have dealt with the coronavirus. So if you look in in Asia, uh, you know, fertility rates in, you know, Vietnam, you know, Japan, Singapore, all these countries, South Korea, they have dealt with it much better. And New Zealand now has gotten rid of, of coronavirus. So while US is a car wreck, UK is the same, maybe not you know, it's, which is also surprising. And same it goes with France. And uh, uh, so it's, it's, it's more surprising that our institutions are so poorly to deal with it. Uh, and, you know, of course, there was a plan. Obama, they had a plan for a pandemic outbreak, uh, which Trump binned. But that said, you know, uh, the protective equipment uh, storage was also depleted, and this was done by, by Obama. They used it during the swine flu, and they didn't really buy in new stuff. But it's not only about the, the protective equipment. It's about, you know, how to deal with it as a society. And, and I think, you know, there's been a disaster, and that's why it's called the wake-up call, because we have to do something about how our institution and democracies in Western countries are dealing with stuff like this because it will happen again and and right now it doesn't look good here in the nordics we've done better switzerland done better canada's done better but you know some of the major economies have done very poorly if you look at sort of the the consequences and let's let's bring in stocks you had this like k recovery where something went extremely well we're using a platform now that was more worth than maybe all seven of the biggest airline companies together um, do you feel like that that K recovery in the stock market is the right representation going forward the next five years? Or do you feel that's more like a, a reaction of something horrible happening in one year and then we'll go back to normal? Yeah, now I tried, I think I tried Zoom first time in March or something. And 
And I did the same mistake as you were talking about me. I looked at the stock and so it's gone quite a lot. Maybe, you know, I really liked the, the program and I thought this is going to be big. But I didn't ex- invest because I thought, you know, stock already gone and it's the biggest mistake I've done. So that just showed that, you know, don't look too much at, uh, on, on the, how much the stock has gone when investing. Um, yeah, I think the stock market's been crazy. Uh, some of these stocks, you know, it's very frothy when you see Airbnb being priced up 115% on IPO dates. You know, you have to go back to this uh, dot-com area and look at the uh, Netscape and, and these kind of stocks. And I lo- actually looked at, uh, you know, the 10 biggest pops on these IPOs. And, and number seven, really, I liked. It was called Cashierflow. Not cash flow, but cash flow, which is an IT company. So I, I, there's way too much money flowing around. Uh, it, we are living in an uh, age where we are doing financial experiments, which we have never done before, where money is being pumped everywhere and liquidity is massive. But the thing with liquidity and I think a lot of people learn this during the financial crisis is that liquidity is a mirage. So it's very, it can be there, but once you want to tap it, suddenly it can evaporate. And and that will eventually happen. Uh, And and then some of these 40 stocks, they really will have a hard time. But if you look at the dot-com experience, you know, the index was down like 50%. But... It was mostly, you know, a lot of TMT stocks, which we call them at that time. But, you know, sound value stocks performed much better. So we are in the same environment where value stocks in the late 90s was terrible in terms of performance. And people were thinking Warren Buffett is is outdated. And then we had a correction in the dot-com stocks and value stocks did very well compared to, to, to those stocks. I think we are... Uh, similar path these days. Of course, some of the big tank stocks, they will do well. You know, people will be buying iPhones and stuff like that. But it's a lot of other companies which are just crazy. And, and we also see it here in Oslo with a lot of companies. As, as long as they can say that they are doing hydrogen, their stock will fly. I agree. Uh, if you look at... And Bitcoin, is, isn't it? 20, you like Bitcoin. Is it like $22,000 now? I mean, in all that macro talk, you're like you creating the perfect argument for why to buy Bitcoin. It can't <laughs> grow any more than 21 million. But I, I wanted to talk a bit about if you take that analysis over to the energy market, is it much harder to have that effect on the energy market? Is it much more slowly or can it be disruptive in any way? Or like you said, renewables growing pretty slowly compared to LNG. Is there any type of black swans or crazy breakthroughs? I mean, there's a lot of experiments going on. You have hydrogen in, in airline companies, etc. Is it anything that can surprise you? Let's say next five years, because it's hard to surprise you maybe in one year in the energy market. Yeah, I think we are actually living in the age of disruption. So, you know, uh, economist Schumpeter uh, hid invented this word creative destruction i think it was like in the 1920s or something uh, and we are even though a lot of people are saying that you know the kind of innovation has been slowing down uh, because you know back in the ages we invented uh, steam engines and cars and planes and you know 
dishwashers and, and stuff like that, which is very visible. Today, innovation is much on a more granular level. It's software. So like this Zoom, you know, you, it's not that visible in that sense. But there's a, you know, just take the example of the coronavirus. So they once they had this virus, they were able to uh, crack the DNA uh, sequence very quickly. You know, remember we spent uh, billions trying to be able to decode the human genome. Uh, so they are able to do this in like two weeks and spread it around the world to all the smartest people in the world. Uh, and they are then developing a vaccine, which usually take like 10, 15 years to create a vaccine. But not only are they creating a vaccine very quickly, they are creating a new type of vaccine, which is a messenger RNA vaccine, which is a new type and which has a lot of, uh, you know, uh, potentials for other diseases or viruses so this could be very well used in in, in 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 cancer for example which we have been trying to crack for a long time so so there's been you know innovation is going quicker and quicker but it's maybe not that visible uh, and, and certainly we will have uh, disruption in the energy space uh, everybody do think now that hydrogen is the new disruption i think maybe it's uh it's uh, it's a dead end because uh, you know I I have my, my water here you know if if I'm gonna make it into hydrogen you know uh, let's say we're using green hydrogen we put down two two rods a cathode and an anode and we spend a lot of electricity to to make H2O to H2 and then you know hydrogen is you know you can't really have hydrogen in a in, in that form, so either you have to pressure it or cool it down. I, I talked about it a lot last time, but then, then again, you have to spend, after making hydrogen, spending a lot of electricity, cracking it down, and then you need to use 30% more energy to uh, cool it down to minus 253, which is almost absolute zero. And then again, when you want to consume it then, you put it into a fuel cell, which is 60% efficient. So then you lose another 40%. So this is why Elon Musk doesn't call it fuel cell. He calls it fuel cells. So, yeah, you know, and funny. I wonder, it's funny. I, I, just want, I wonder yeah. then, you already, you know, when you were creating that hydrogen, you already had electricity. Why the hell are you spending it on making hydrogen? You could, instead, you could be using that hydrogen to close down a coal plant or even better, you could connect that high electricity to a heating pump. I have a heating pump in my house. Every kilowatt I put in of power into that heating pump returns me about four uh, kilowatts. So, you know, that's a nice way of heating my house as well. So, you know, um, yeah. And then even in the space where it makes the most sense to have hydrogen, which is aviation because of the weight of the hydrogen, they will have ships now, planes commercially ready by 2035, which is 15 years in the future. And then we are really thinking about using it on, on ships. But then you want to do something else. Well, then suddenly you made hydrogen. You want to mix in nitrogen to make a clean product, which is hydrogen, to a highly toxic product, which is ammonia. So it's, um, you know, there will be disruption. I'm not just I just not really bought on the idea that hydrogen is is what the product will be. And I think it would be much better having a carbon tax and let people find out what the product should be rather than bureaucrats in 
Brussels, which I have probably not been much into the business environment. Yeah, I just it's funny when you mention Elon Musk. I just have this like memory of watching. I think it's a YouTube video. I think it's many many years ago. He was asked this question, and he's like he didn't want to answer it because he thought it was so stupid that anything would suggest going hydrogen compared to to electricity. But then again, yeah, you, have to, I, you have to respect this as a craft. So I don't want to say that I can I can trust Elon because he has skin in the game on the electricity side. But still, no. it was like very like because like you said like. You burn so much, the efficiency is so poor, right? Yeah. No, it's make much more sense to, if you have that green electricity, you can plug it into a car. Of course, it works on a car because you have wheels and the friction on a, on, on a road isn't that much. It's much more friction taking a ship through, through water. But, uh, but uh, again, you know, why should we use finite green electricity to make hydrogen when we can get rid of, of coal first and, and, and put it into to use a lot of other spaces first, you know. So it's, it's more about, you know, picking some low-hanging fruit and going for hydrogen is on the top of the tree. Yeah, I agree. So, so basically, like the bigger point, I, I thought you, you were making the argument, but I just want to emphasize it, is that for me, it, it would make so much more sense learning from COVID. What did we learn? If the incentives are huge, we have breakthroughs, take the vaccines. So why don't just have a very hard carbon tax on the worst stuff, get rid of coal in like an economic way and force the innovators to deliver something? Because for me, it's hard to imagine that politicians can incentivize people to just do stuff because if, if you if you're honest like most people are kind of lazy so there needs to be a big incentive to do big things because it's very hard to do it right mm. so in your mind like all the guys that i'm talking to on the podcast just say like carbon tax most efficient way and let the innovators work so why mm. can't you do it then no, I think they tried with this cap and trade, so they gave out a lot of permits depending on... So if you were polluting a lot, you got a lot of permits. And then they're going to withdraw these permits and people are going to trade the permits. And it's just a very inefficient way. You, I think you have to be an economist somewhere to come up with this kind of system. Uh, I, I'm much better just... Just do it simply. Uh, CO2 tax, do like Canada. They implemented CO2 tax. They started at a level now. I think they started like $25. And then they're going to gradually increase it to like $50 over time in order to kind of have this, you know, path, uh, decarbonization path. Uh, uh, and then, of course, the government will get some revenues. But, you know, you can use that revenues probably to pay up, pay down some of the debt you have been gobbling up through this corona crisis. Um, and also maybe to stimulate the economy and I, corporations through lower taxation. So, so this is just a much easier way. So what we're ending up with now is rather having bureaucrats making micromanagement of regulation. So where they are just putting up stuff and re requirements without taking very much into account the cost considerations. So you're making an inefficient system. So a, a simple system with a carbon tax gradually increasing would let the market fix the problem. Because I think a lot of politicians think that it's the market economy which is the reason why we have the climate crisis. It's not. It's politics. The market is delivering what we are asking the market to deliver. What we have said to the market, it's free to pollute. It's free to release CO2. 
and it's free to release socks and knocks and all these other kind of noxic. So what you need to do is just to put some price on this pollution or you could also ban it. Uh, so if you look at uh, smoking, smoking was allowed and widespread. And then we said, you know, okay, we're gonna increase the, the price of smoking um, because you know somebody has to pick up the health bill here. Um, and then we also said, you know, some places you are not allowed to smoke because you are affecting other people. So then smoking in the Western society has declined quite a lot. Uh, and in US even more so, because there you also have to fork some of the health costs if, if you are smoking. So, so the market can solve more, most problems if you just give them the incentives. The stupidest thing you are doing is to make a lot of uh, detailed regulation. If you look at, you know, prior, you know, uh, when we had a big economic meltdown, you had FDR and uh, was voted in the New Deal. Uh, I can't say the number of pages on top of my head, but the Green Deal was a very slim document. It was, you know, maybe 50 pages, you know, how to, to implement this fiscal stimuli and changes to the society. Uh, and this other deal he made, which was the Glass-Steagall Act, which was separating investment and commercial banks, was also a very slim, you know, 30 pages or whatever. So, it, you know, then you kind of made some high level political decisions about where we're going to go and you left it to the market to fix a lot of these problems. Today, that's not how we're working. And this is, you know, actually, if you read the book, another book by these two guys I mentioned, which I think is called The Fourth Revolution or something, they will also say that, you know, the market revolution we had in the 80s with Thatcher and Reagan, that wasn't fulfilled. You know, we're actually ending up now where uh, we have gone to a place where society is now uh, more pro-regulation than it has been in a long time. And, and micromanagement regulation is, uh, is not the right way, I think. How will uh, Biden uh, affect the energy market in your end? Is it a big difference? We wanted to get back in the Paris Act and stuff, or it doesn't really matter in the big numbers? I think... Uh, Keep in mind that nobody was more supportive of uh, shale development than the Obama-Biden administration. I do think that the new administration will be a more left in that sense because they have a constituency of, of, of people who are you know, more supportive of a Green Deal. Uh, and the process of getting rid of coal in in US is going rapidly because of, of natural gas. But, I think uh, there will be support of, of the natural gas industry because it's it's a big job creator. Um, there will probably be more stimulus. They will, of course, enter the Paris Agreement, which is, I, th I think, good, you know, for for kind of global cooperation. Uh, and hopefully, uh, there will be some more. Uh, you know, there will still be a big problems with China in terms of trade and jobs. Uh, but I think that the, the dialogue is will probably be done in a more adult way than which has been done the last couple of years with all the screaming and tweets. So, so in that way, you could maybe have a political environment more conductive for business between China and America, you know, because these are the most powerful economies in the world and they really need to find a way to sort out their problems and deal with it rather than this kind of uh, uh, second Cold War, which is... Uh, in, in process of, of being created with what we would also call the splinter nets. 
where you have the great firewall of China uh, and their satellite uh, states, uh, and then you have the Western societies on the other part of this uh, spinternet. Makes sense. So just to ask a question, because maybe the analysis is interesting. So if you take this, the standpoint that LNG can scale 10x in five years, what's the reason behind it? Well, I don't think LNG can scale 10 times, but uh, I think uh, it's feasible to, to scale it uh, probably, you know, a doubling of the market the next 15 years. Uh, maybe the next 20 years, but so something around that. And I, I think the main you know, obstacle for scaling LNG further is, of course, carbon emissions. So, of course, you know, we are reducing a lot of the local pollutants, but CO2 emissions has to be dealt with. And, um, you know, there are a lot of smart people working on this. Carbon tax will certainly stimulate uh, inventiveness and, and, and entrepreneurship. Uh, and there are several ways of getting the carbon out. Um, so one way you can do it in the combustion phase through an alum cycle process where you are capturing the CO2 during the combustion. Uh, and then you can do post-combustion, which is either um, carbon capture where you put it underground. Um, uh, this is also basically the way you make blue hydrogen. You know, you're taking out the CO2 and putting it underground. Or uh, you can also do uh, something called... Uh, uh, what you call could call it carbon cracking. So it's more like a, a process where you're taking out the CO2, um, where you also can end up as, as hydrogen, but this is what we call turquoise hydrogen. Uh, so then uh, natural gas could be a feedstock, a chemical feedstock for hydrogen, which I think makes more sense than, uh, than using wind power and, you know, finite scarce, electricity, green electricity to produce hydrogen. And, and it's not just me thinking that if, if you read this um, uh, cost estimates by Oxford uh, Institute of Energy and they look at, you know, making hydrogen from green electricity or making it from, from, uh, from natural gas, it uh, seems to be much cheaper doing it from natural gas. And that will be the case in the future because you don't have to go through the you know, the harbor, you know, electrolysis of, of making hydrogen. So uh, I think, you know, we can scale it and, and eventually you need to decarbonize. And that's the, that's the limitation factor for, uh, for natural gas or LNG. Yeah. I, I mean, I just find that the question interesting because I can't remember the exact numbers, but like the energy demand when it compounds only 1%, right? And people want to have a shower in India and people want to get on the middle class. I can't really see how you're going to provide all that energy in a sustainable way because the growth on the demand side is going so rapidly. So you actually, yeah, I think, I think we talked about it last time, but you have to cover the whole earth with in solar panels to make it work. Right. So in my mind, maybe it's just like, uh, you could say that the, the population collapse that is coming probably in some years could help but i mean i don't think that's the the only saving here that people are starting not to get uh, kids anymore i i don't think you don't need to cover the whole world with solar but uh, of course the problem is that solar is intermittent that's so unless you find uh, uh, space solar power you know you put a lot of solar plants 
in the air, and then you could have it in geosynchronous uh, orbit, uh, so that it always track you, and, and then you could uh, kind of um, create solar energy and radiate it down to the Earth through radio waves. Then, of course, you <laughs> it would be a bit, a bit easier, and it wouldn't be intermittent. It would be base load, but but the, the main problem is, of course, the intermittency. But do you believe those projects? Because there are some people working on that quite intensively, those space projects. Of course, it's expensive, but, uh, you know, we so we probably should get Elon Musk looking into it because then it will be done a lot uh, cheaper than having uh, NASA or other people doing it. But, but just one final question on the, on the energy side, and I don't know if this is possible, but can you do something in the oceans? Because you have so much oceans that, I don't know, some on the energy side of course they have tried this uh, you know tidal power it's uh, it's it's not very efficient and and you know maintaining those kind of turbines on the water is not that easy either uh, of course you know wind conditions at sea is often better so that's why you have offshore wind but even in Norway, where you have very good wind, you know, the economics of offshore wind is much less than, than onshore wind. Um, yeah. So, um, but, yeah. but just mind you that they're building data centers in the oceans way down. So there has to be something you can do in the oceans if you're, if you use a fence. Yeah, you are the, the Bitcoin miner. So I guess you know more about this. You should tell me, not me, not the other way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's save the, the mining center on the ocean for the next episode. But um, I, th I think there are some Twitter questions and I will try to sort of pull them together. But I think there are some interesting topics related to your job as a CEO. I want to talk a bit about stock buybacks later, but can we start just on the, on the strategic side? Because I think you reported in Q2 that you were open for special opportunities if they were to arrive because the market was kind of rookie, but you added solid financing, etc. Mm -hmm. Can you take us back to, to some of the things you can't talk about and are, and are allowed to talk about? Because my sort of narrative I'm seeing is that you're happy with the fleet, you're happy with the operation. So it's just about tuning it and optimizing it. But I mean, that doesn't seem super visionary going forward. <laughs> no. Uh, of course, there have been some distressed sales uh, or people who have been trying to sell sh ships, which is, you know, reported in the, the news, so it's, it's public domain. Uh, we have looked at it, but it's, you know, for us, it's, it's a bit hard to do something when we have a stock which is priced at, you know, 50% of... Uh, Okay, maybe maybe it's like fifty-five percent now of of a book value. So now book is is new ships, so basically NIV. Um, so you know, in that, you know, what the market is telling you when your stock is being priced that low is <laughs> don't grow <laughs> because uh, you need uh, capital to grow. Um, and of course, we have raised the capital in our company for the. The, the third in ships we are owning today, and, and also debt finance. So it's 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 not very you can't really raise equity to do something on the growth side. Uh, and then of course you could always buy something ships uh, and 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 use your stock as payment for those uh, ships. But we don't really want to do that. We don't want to make more stocks at these kind of levels. So right now I, the, the the market is making it a bit difficult for us to grow and you know we we're not there to to just grow for the sake of growth we are here to make a 
big, uh, now make a, a good shipping company and make uh, returns for our shareholders. Uh, if growth is uh, profitable, then we will pursue growth. If, 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 if not, then we will not grow. And there's no investment uh, opportunity for us that is better than paying dividends or buying back our stocks. So right now we just focused on taking the last three deliveries, continue building our organization, uh, fine tuning, uh, and 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 eventually you know things goes up uh, up and down. So you have to be ready for opportunities. So we are of course talking to people, exploring, but. But, uh, but uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the economics of the capital markets just make it uh, difficult for us to, to do something. And, you know, we don't need to do something. You know, 13 ships is, is a nice uh, fleet number, uh, nice chip number in our fleet. And, you know, eventually we can grow. But, you know, remember, we have grown tremendously quick in a, a short time here. You know, uh, 2007, starting 2018, we had zero ships. Now we have 10. Uh, Q2 next year we will have 13 ships. So we have been in a phase where we have a rapid growth. Uh, now it's it's time to deliver capital back to the owners. Is it possible to sort of have a theory what the market are seeing that you don't see, or is it just hard to know what the market really wants to say? No, you you have to be humble about the market. Of course, I think what the market has been very afraid of is. We have seen spikes in the freight market and then it's collapsed uh, after New Year's and, and, uh, and, and last two years because of, of very warm winters. But, you know, we had a stretch here in 2014, 15, 16, 17, where you had delays and, and that created oversupply of ships and, and the scrapping has been lower than maybe some people expected. So there's been a lot of people disappointed in investment for shipping in especially in, L, in lng for a long period of time and people have bad memories and if you are <laughs> running money you know uh, coming up with the proposal to invest in lng shipping is not going to give you a lot of applause uh, so so i think that's really the fear uh, so of course that's something we have to deal with trying to tell people uh, about how we see the market um, uh, and, and it creates, of course, limitation for what we can do. Uh, but uh, again, I think, you know, we, we have the scale we, we need to. So, so and then you know, we just have to de demonstrate that uh, we are able to deliver. And I think we have um, delivered very well this year, you know, despite all the headwinds and, and, and economic <laughs> destruction and, uh, you know, cargo cancellations we are delivering uh, with our guidance around 60,000 on a time charter equivalent basis this year which is a, you know not great but uh, it's surely much better than a lot of people were expecting and and as you know we are then delivering a, a pretty good you know not not very fat but you know we are delivering a positive cash flow and are able to pay dividends so you know hopefully next year will be better and some hopefully we can surprise people that uh, I give them a positive surprise rather than some of the negative surprise that has been the case uh, the last couple of years but also keep in mind that this sentiment is not only something that is in the investor mentality uh, that we have had these negative surprises for some couple of years also means that people in the industry are more reluctant to invest and 
and uh, and banks are more reluctant to lend, which is driving up capital costs, which is a, a major factor here. So so it's also kind of putting down some seeds for for better times ahead. I think there was another Twitter question, but I think you you answered it in the presentation. Is that if you're afraid of it's going to overflow the market with uh, new constructions? Do you just want to quickly summarize uh, that, or I don't, you know. I don't really see a lot of uh, owners heading to the yards. There will be orders, uh, and there are orders. Uh, these are either for new projects where they have not uh, bought ships, or it's some of the people are looking to replace steamships with new ships. So, so there will be new orders, but I don't really see that people will be running out doing a speculative order. There's not been any speculative orders this year in 2020. So last time you had a speculative order was in 2019. And yeah, some of those people are regretting uh, quite a lot uh, now. And, and some of them have actually also entered into time charters, which has been very poor in order to be able to get financing. So I, they've really burned their hand. Um, so I think that will limit uh, the, the amount of speculative capital. And why should you do something speculative? If you are bullish about LNG, you can just buy your shares. You know, you get uh, ships much cheaper in our, on the stock exchange than on, on yards. For at our company, you get an LNG ship at, I don't know, 150, 155 million dollars. It's on the water, so you don't have to wait two and a half years for it to start generating revenues. It's already financed long term on good rates you have a management running the company and we have pretty good track record here in the john frederickson company of running shipping companies so why why the, at all do that you know you could rather buy stocks in our company uh, if you want to do be speculative true so just one factor i mean there's a lot of things affecting the prices and rates etc but if you can just spend two three minutes on, on weather right because yeah. it has to be a big influence and if you have cold winters warm winters maybe you can explain how much it influenced sort of the, the rates etc but i also i had this idea uh, at night yesterday but I, I didn't quite manage to get it on paper but it was like i thought about you know the climate changes making the world a bit warmer yeah. But so I thought, okay, that's bad because you need the cold winters to get the spike on prices. But then I, I also I also thought that, but it really maybe it isn't the problem that it goes a bit up. It's more extreme, so the weather becomes much more extreme than usual. Some say scientists. So can you just talk a bit about the weather? Why it's so important for you, and also how people should view the weather forecasting. It doesn't make sense to weather forecast a long time, I know, but you can have it in mind, basically. Yeah, no, but it's absolutely, you know, climate change will create more unpredictable water, more extreme weather. We've already seen it in America this year, two of the named storms and, and hurricanes. It's a new record. Beat the record even from 2005 when Katrina was uh, wrecking havoc. Uh, so, so we see it there. We see, uh, we've seen this uh, warmest decade warm winters are becoming more normal the northern sea route this is the route from um, you know, to russia to asia has been open all the way end of november this year so the ice sheets are easier to get through uh, so so of course there are you know if, if you don't believe in climate change uh, 
then I think you haven't done a lot of uh, of reading, and you know there's a lot of people saying, well, there is scientists are not in agreement about this, but. Uh, if you look at scientists, what are they really doing? They are arguing. So scientists tend to disagree. That's their job. And but when it comes to climate change, there is you know almost uniform agreement that we have uh, climate change creating uh, different weather and and all this stuff. So so that, that you know that will happen then. And uh, you know we have to adapt. I think you know if you're saying that climate change we cannot will not happen, you know you you have to spend some money on adapting. So look at the, the Dutch people; they have been adapting to to climate change for a very long time. So, and, and I think we also do have to prepare for some uh, maybe climate change we are not able to reverse in that sense. Uh, in terms of uh, LNG demand, of course, yeah, warmer winters create less demand. Uh, but you know, you could also have warmer summers. That's creating a lot of more electricity demand because <laughs> you need to cool down. Uh, and actually, in, if you look at countries like uh, France, where you have a very big proportion of the electricity coming from nuclear power plants, what happens when you have a warm summer in France is the fact that you are not able to get enough cooling water for the reactors. So you have to shut down the nukes in the middle of the summer when uh, the peak demand for electricity is high so you know there the, you know then of course you could have more demand for for gas of course sun power would probably be 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 be, be creating more electricity but that's only part of the day and wind doesn't necessarily <laughs> blow stronger when you have a warm weather so so i i think it's inevitable we have some uh, uh, change in the weather long term um uh, unless, of course, we can get this what we call the direct carbon uh, capture, where you're just taking it from the air and sucking it out of uh, of the air. Of course, it's not that easy because even though CO2 emissions have been increasing, that it's you know air is 78% nitrogen, 21% CO2, <laughs> oxygen, and then CO2 is only 400 part per million. So it's that's why direct air capture is, is a bit difficult because it's just a small trace element in, in the air. But of course, if you are able to commercialize that strategy, then of course you could get CO2 emissions down uh, quite rapidly from the atmosphere. And you know, uh, right now I think I read that the, the price of doing this could be around $800 per ton. So actually, it could be that actually if you are able to drive down this cost, because scaling those kind of systems is probably much cheaper than scaling hydrogen, because hydrogen have some natural bottlenecks. So then if certainly that goes down to $150 per ton, then it actually would be cheaper to just burn LNG and capture it from there. But uh, again, I think you, it's easier to capture the CO2 from a natural gas plant, because the concentration there of CO2 is much higher than in just regular air. So. Makes sense. I had this like, I'll, I'll give the example briefly, but I don't think it, it, it can transfer directly to shipping. But uh, I did some research on, on stock buybacks. And I think I just have to get my numbers correct that over the last 20 years, IBM bought back shares worth 140 billion. The market cap today is 110 billion. So yeah. basically, if you're a tech geek like I am, when you buy back stock, you're saying to shareholders, we have no idea what we're doing. 
we think the best way is just to buy back our stocks because in the tech world you will you will think that let's use our money on more R&D, let's hire more people, let's pay them more and let's not buy back stocks because we're saying to the market we have no idea what to do. And I don't think that in like the tech narrative translates directly into your narrative. But maybe you can just talk about do we have emphasis on people in the tech world saying that buying back stocks is not the best idea for a company? Well, I really do think it depends a bit. Of course, buying back the stocks put money in the hands of shareholders. So you are distributing uh, cash. So, you know, even though you have bought back stocks for $140 billion and your market cap is $140 billion, you, you distributed that money to people. And when they get that money, you know, if, if some of these IBM people shareholders got that money they maybe they invested some of that money into netflix or amazon or so uh, for me i you know it doesn't really matter you know companies that are not able to innovate or at is at the end of their life cycle should distribute money to shareholders either in the form of dividend or share buybacks so that shareholders can take that capital and invest them in new companies where most of the innovation is happening. Innovation is not happening in big companies. They are happening in, in smaller companies. So, But then you can say to IBM on the counterpart, why don't IBM uh, do some M&As if they have the money in the market cap? You know, if you look at the tech industry, you know, who did a lot of innovation? It was this uh, company called Xerox, which makes these copy machines. They basically invented the... Uh, operating system and uh, you know a lot of the technology we today have and but you know there were some smart guys called Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs which were lurking around their offices and and kind of not really stealing the, <laughs> the, 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 the technology but they were seeing the potential of the technology and they were adapting that technology and created a company like Microsoft and Apple so even though Xerox already had invented a lot of this stuff, it really created, you needed innovators and entrepreneurs to commercialize it. And big companies are not very good at doing this because they, they are busy having meetings, talking, uh, sending reports, while smaller companies tend to be much more disruptive. But, but it's not only that, it's also like you have this, like one of the best, uh, best theory in, in innovation, in my opinion, is the innovator's dilemma. So you can't say that the reason why Airbnb is going to be way bigger than all the hotel chains probably is because when they started, it was a crappier product than the hotels. So for a hotel business, it doesn't make sense to invest in Airbnb and building that same model because it's not, it's not good enough, right? So the innovator is the dilemma is sometimes that your main position is better than the competitor, but since the competitors are compounding and are super flexible, they can do many more. They have they have a much broader opportunity scale than a big corporation, right? Because yeah. being big also has some restrictions. I think it's yeah. only Amazon that has shown that being so big doesn't need to have restrictions. Uh, it's one more company and uh, maybe not to the same extent today as in the past, but of course Steve Jobs had this mantra, you know, cannibalize your products, otherwise your uh, competitors will do it. So, uh, you know, Apple, even though it grew quite rapidly, has been very good at uh, innovating, maybe not so much these days because 
a lot of the products they having launching today are more tweaks and and or just copying other people's business models like Spotify or or, or Netflix. So so. Um, but yeah, there's, I, there's there's also another example. If you have Amazon, I think Jeff Bezos when he launched Kindle, he basically said to the Kindle team, "Your job is to destroy our book business." And the book business yeah. was the most profitable business, and maybe the only business at that time. So imagine yeah. you have a company and you're telling to a team, your job is to destroy our biggest main product. Yeah, and, and the first Kindle was great. You know, you had like uh, like GPRS a SIM card into it. So even if you were sitting in uh, a beach in, 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 in Thailand, you could uh, download a book uh, without having a Wi-Fi. Uh, of course, you can still have that service today, but most people buy it with Wi-Fi. So certainly, I, I, I agree with you with that regard. Super. I have just a couple points left. I, I couldn't sleep yesterday, so I did some research in your local papers, and I found an, I found an article from 2015. I want to revisit it. It says oh, please you, not. You, you... <laughs> <laughs> it, the, the article was that. Östen uh, is one of the biggest talents in Norway. I think this is 2015. You said you didn't like that that narrative because he had some gray, gray hairs already. So uh, I know, even more so now. I don't want to talk so much about your own talent, but I want to see how do you define talent today? Because in your position, you get the privilege to find great talent. You have you can attract people from all over the world. So in your mind, having been an upcoming and a big talent, how do you yourself assess talent? It's, it's hard to kind of put the, the kind of the, you know just one one thing here you know it's it's a you know people who are you know you have to find people who are open I think the you know the the scarcest resource today maybe in terms of if you go to school you learn a lot of stuff but creativity is probably not the thing you learn the most at school you know unless you go to like liberal arts university or something but you know creativity is really uh, the x factor because creativity gives you the ability to, to think outside the box and to come up with new concepts connecting dots which probably people didn't do before and that's why you see a lot of the innovations are done by people who are not specialists on the subject matter they are coming out from somewhere else and looking at stuff and then connecting stuff in one sense, one technology or, or product to another uh, and creating some, some, some great products. So, of course, having people who are creative and, and are able to connect those thoughts and then being able to communicate it and, and, and work with other people about that, it's, I think it's, it's a much scarcer resource today than people who are very good at you know, putting numbers into an Excel sheet or, uh, or, you know, or, or, you know, doing accounting, you know, so, so that's where, where I think the, that's, the, that's the, you know, the, the, the most important factor. But, if, but if I just going to mention one, yes. But, but it's also like intuition after having so much data over the years. So you also have this feeling that if a person is capable or not. Yeah, I think you, you, you tend to realize that fairly quickly if you are uh, paying attention. I agree. So just the last point, because I thought it was interesting in the same article. Uh, I mean, I think it talked about if you wanted to start your own company. And I think I just want to take and take two minutes on this point, because I think someone said 
one of the richest guys in Norway also said to me that if he did higher education, he would never be able to do what he has been doing because when he started in real estate, like his options were so low because if you if you have a higher education, you will get amazing job offers. Maybe you can work in investment banking in New York, etc. And you maybe have student debt as well. So for you to say, no, I'm going to risk it all, probably fail in a business, but I'm going to do it. It's a bit hard. So I think the I think you also said like the obstacles is hard, not only because like you, you would like to do it, but also because the job offers are super good at the same time. Can you spend some minutes talking about that? Because there's a lot of people that listening that want to start their own companies and but maybe isn't sure to go corporate or to go solo in starting a company. Yeah, of course, if you spend a lot of your time getting into universities, first you have to get into universities and then you're going to be at universities and get grades. So of course, you have you know, both a financial investment in that, but also a mental investment in it. And certainly to kind of, I think, you know, you feel that you're throwing it away to, to pursue something totally different is a, a big obstacle for a lot of people. And, 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 and it's hard to kind of make that you're making a very uncertain financial projection about the future compared to something which is more tangible. So, so I think that's uh, a limitation factor and that's why you do see that uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs are um, maybe from a bit different background where they have not invested that much into their knowledge in terms of education and such. So, so, um, but you know, it's also about the culture, you know, what kind of culture do you have? And if you look at, you know, the big success of uh, Silicon Valley, it's, it's about this uh, culture. You know, if you look at uh, students in America 10 years ago before, 15 years ago before the financial crisis, and, and if you ask them, where do you want to, what's your top job, you know, for let's say MBAs, it was financial companies. All the people wanted to work in banks. Then eventually it was hedge funds. But if you ask MBAs today whether they want to work, it's it's in Silicon Valley. But <laughs> And then Silicon Valley today has become more like a traditional industry. So, of course, we need to go go further. And maybe those MBAs in, in, in today, they should rather be starting with uh, biotech, chemicals, uh, or something else rather than than kind of the regular text. So uh, so it's it's also about the cultural uh, element there where people are going in a, a, a safety of the herd mentality uh, rather than doing something entirely different, uh, which is sometimes an, an an obstacle to to entrepreneurship. But, but I think I think that's a great point because if you follow that um, analogy, like you should probably in like a stock sense be short entrepreneurship because now it's too cool to be entrepreneur. So maybe like a guy having a great life in the 30s are saying, okay, this is not realization of the highest hi- master of hierarchy. So I need to start a company because that's the, 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 the mentality is that that's the coolest thing, right? So it's also, yeah. I think they were doing an analysis on where do MBA students want to be? And you should short that sector, not in like it, ah, it can't yeah. be interpreted as a bad way, but it's something with, with the mentality, right? So if yeah, all MBAs uh, want to be founders, there there is maybe a good time to be short that idea for some years. Yeah, but I think you should never be short entrepreneurship in, in general. You know, it's yeah, you can probably be short tech, but you know, 
we have had a boom in tech entrepreneurship. So that's why I think, you know, we need to have entrepreneurship in different segments. And, and, and probably you need to have entrepreneurship in energy uh, to have the energy transition. Uh, and we need to have entrepreneurship. Why, why don't we have these flying cars? When I grew up, I thought we should be having flying cars. We still don't have them. We have yeah. still not been able to go back to moon since was it, in 1972 with, uh, on Apollo 17. So why have there not been this kind of disruption there now in the last couple of years? So there's a lot of different sectors which have been insulated from uh, disruptions and creative destructions, which are you know, prime to be it. So I think there's still a lot of sectors where you should be looking into and finding new ways of doing stuff. I agree with you, but let's also add to that, that I feel you can be an entrepreneur in a company as well. If you look at the biggest innovation, I can't remember exactly the, the statistics, but I mean, if you take the military industry, especially in US, I mean, that's basically the silver bullet on why they became so powerful. They used the military, they brought tech and they had tremendous innovation. So it's also a question for me. Yeah, but, you, but you know that a lot of the military innovation is done through this call it organization called DARPA. So DARPA is the defense research projects where they are, you know, giving out research grants. And then a lot of the innovations in the military is happening through startups and tech companies on behalf of the military. I agree. Okay. Maybe we may should end it there because I can't I can't find an argument that doesn't get counter argument. So I think, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's a good way of ending there, Stein. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining. Do you have any any final thoughts we didn't share, or do you think we we covered? Uh, or do you want yeah, to summarize? I think we should blow up this Mary Flexmaster logo again. But uh, you know, I, I, I thank you for uh, having me back again so soon, and uh, thank you for the people uh, listening in, and uh, and I, I wish you all a, a merry Christmas uh, and a happy new year and uh, we are back uh, in 2021 and hopefully we will have a exciting year with a lot of volume growth uh, and with Asia pull of, of cargos as well but let's see you know we will be reporting in middle of February so we will give some more update on the market and and financial at that time thanks hi everyone Christopher here again just a few things before you leave the show if you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care. <laughs>